Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The COVID-19 pandemic has raised numerous ethical challenges for Catholic healthcare. How do we triage patients? How do we allocate scarce resources such as ventilators? Can we withdraw a ventilator from one patient and give it to another? What about do not resuscitate orders or DNRs? In this podcast, which is being recorded on April 6th, Dr. Joseph Meany, NCBC President, and Dr. John Brahaney, NCBC Director of Institutional Relations, join me, your host, Joe Zalot, to discuss these and other COVID-19 related questions facing Catholic and other healthcare professionals at this moment in time. Dr. Joseph Meany and Dr. John Brahaney, welcome to our podcast. Great to be here. Thank you, Joseph. Yeah, great to be here. All right. To get going right into our first question, and this is, uh, initially this is for Dr. Meany. What is the NCBC doing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? So I think with regards to COVID-19, we were a little bit like the rest of the world, very surprised at how quickly it went from zero to 60. Uh, it was a, an enormous ramp up, you know, of, of activity, of problems, and the ethical problems in particular just started multiplying. So we at the NCBC decided that we needed a massive response. Uh, just as the rest of the, the nation and the government was making a huge response, the NCBC also needed to come out on all the different ethical issues, the new ones that are being raised, uh, to serve all of our constituents. And, and we really are um, a very important medical ethics institution for the Catholic hospitals of America, but also for the Catholic bishops and other institutions that turn to us and even, you know, individuals who call us for their, their free help uh, ethical consultations. So we were working very hard uh, almost from the beginning on this problem. And so we've essentially had to improvise quite a bit because uh, our ethicists or employees in general are not allowed to work from the office anymore. So we've all had to work from home and coordinate that but we've managed. Uh, we had to ramp up our website uh, tremendously because uh, prior, prior to that, we were communicating in all kinds of different ways, including going to different conferences and speaking you know, to different groups. Uh, most of our speaking has been canceled or turned into webinar type situations. But we've managed, I think, to uh, provide a huge amount of information and a huge amount of consultations in a very short amount of time. So I'm very proud of the work that the NCBC has been able to do in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, I'd like to, uh, to back up what you said and just for our, for our listeners, uh, go to the NCBC website, ncbcenter.org, and there's a link, uh, NCBC resources on COVID-19, and there's a lot of material up there. There's messages from our president, Joseph Meany, and from our president emeritus, John Haas, there's a number of documents from NCBC ethicists, and we also have uh, a number of external resources as well, other organizations, their statements that, uh, that, uh, that we agree with and are well stated, and, and we give those for people as well. So uh, next question for, uh, for, for Dr. Burhaney, how is the NCBC working on the front lines with Catholic healthcare systems during this pandemic? Yeah, I would say a couple of ways. I mean, one, when we produce resources, uh, we certainly share them directly uh, with Catholic ethicists and, and systems with whom we've been working for years. 
but uh, we've also seen uh, several institutions reach out to us for some specific uh, help in formulating uh, policies, uh, sometimes uh, individuals who are with other even secular healthcare systems or in a kind of an alliance uh, or working relationship with a secular healthcare system and they're on the ethics committee uh, or something, they've been reaching out to us too. So we're definitely uh, in communication uh, with several specific uh, systems and individuals. I know we're going to talk about some of these in more detail later on, but are there specific concerns that Catholic healthcare professionals and, and administrators are expressing or asking of us? Well, you know, uh, you know what we've heard is they're they're scrambling. I guess as much as we are, I think we at the NCDC feel that, uh, as uh, Dr. Mimi said a second ago, this is not something we've had to deal with uh, before. And even, uh, you know, some of these healthcare systems, you know, I think it helps to remember that um, even though institutions have had policies and protocols for triage in general, those often have been put in place with a view to mass casualty events uh, like a terrorist bombing or a plane crash or a weather event or something like this. So having a disease pandemic uh, is very different for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, it puts the healthcare professionals themselves under direct threat uh, in a way that you know a, a mass casualty event would not. And the numbers of people and the duration of the event, you know, across weeks and maybe months, can be much greater. So uh, the concerns they have is, you know, their, their old protocols didn't anticipate this or they haven't had the practice in uh, really utilizing the protocols. We haven't had a situation like this. So, um, you know, they're trying to cover all their bases, I would say, uh, clinical bases, legal bases, ethical bases and mission bases. And trying to make sure, even as they respond to many unexpected challenges and things like equipment shortage, uh, that they're doing it as Catholic institutions, you know, from their mission and from their Catholic identity. And, you know, that that's a struggle. I know just um, some people I've been talking to, we've been talking to members of state Catholic conferences and also some of the offices uh, within the USCCB, the U.S. Conf Conference of Catholic Bishops, and answering questions and having discussions with them as well. Joseph Meany, are there any other um, constituents who who you've been having conversations with that you'd like to uh, like to tell us about? So we've had a number of uh, state Catholic conferences contact us. So those, that's the grouping of dioceses in a particular state in the union that have uh, addressed those questions because uh, a lot of the work you know, that goes together with the state governments, uh, the church uh, has these state conferences to, to interact with them. And so the state of Texas and some, some other states have been in contact with us uh, regarding, you know, because a lot of these policies are being put, put into place on a state basis rather than on a national, nationwide basis. Very good. All right. Going back to Dr. Burhaney. So Catholic hospitals are reviewing and some are probably implementing 
triage protocols to address shortages in critical care resources, particularly ventilators. What moral principles need to be included in these protocols? So when we, when we uh, talk about moral principles, I think it's important to remember that we identify moral principles uh, either based on some clear and specific uh, church teachings, uh, which we have on, on some issues, or on, on our moral experience where uh, we come uh, as individuals uh, and as communities uh, to say that there are some moral harms uh, that we should not cause and some moral goods uh, that we should recognize and protect and promote. So that's what a moral principle is. It's, it's an identified uh, good or moral harm. That's number one. Number two, um, I think uh, we can identify at least two sets uh, of principles that uh, Catholic institutions should be keeping in mind. So one are what I would call substantive principles. Uh, these are principles that would guide us either to protect and promote certain moral goods or to avoid certain moral harms. And then I would say there are some process principles. So once we have our clinical uh, criteria and norms in place, our ethical uh, principles in place, how do we then uh, work through any number of cases? How do we apply these things in practice? And that's what I would call the, the process-based principles. So um, let me just mention, uh, because we've been following uh, many different sets of standards, either that were out there in the past uh, or that people have put out just in the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, grounds for agreement out there. So one of the most frequently cited uh, principles that I've seen uh, is the principle of stewardship of scarce resources. So, you know, there aren't enough ventilators, there aren't enough ICU beds, uh, there aren't enough medications, there's not enough uh, protective personal equipment. So there's there's a moral duty and a moral good to stewarding those resources. So that would be one substantive uh, principle. I think we can agree with that. Um, you know, there's no problem there. Uh, there's another one out there, though, that I think um, we need to uh, have some caution about, and, and maybe we need to either restate it or refine it for our own good. So you see um, the good or the principle of maximizing benefits or the good or the principle of utility. I've seen this, you know, some of these principles get phrased uh, different ways, either by different individuals or organizations. Now, I think there's, there's some truth to that. I mean, if you have scarce resources and you're trying to take care of patients, you want to uh, help the most patients that you can, the greatest number and you want to have the greatest impact that you can. You know, you want to save as many lives as you can. Where we need to have some caution is, is when the language, and who knows about the intent, seems to drift in a utilitarian direction. And you hear things like, well, normally, you know, of course, we treat individuals on a day-to-day -day basis, but now we have to care for the population. And when we hear words like that, 
uh, or concepts like that that seem to drift away from recognizing another uh, very significant principle, the principle of respect uh, for human life and human dignity, then I think we have to push back a little bit. I think we could refine that principle of um, maximizing benefit just a bit and say, well, we want to care for each and every uh, person or patient who comes through the door. We want to offer them the right level of care, uh, the right amount of care. And we want to be able to do that for the set of patients coming in in the foreseeable future. And in that sense, I think you could say, well, we're trying to maximize these these benefits for more patients. I think if you start to get too broad and say, now it's time to care for the population, uh, you might get in a little danger there. Yeah, and I'd like to mention too, there's uh, up on the NCBC website, there's a document that, John, you actually were the primary author on um, called Points to Consider, Triage in the Perspective of Catholic Bioethics, which gets into some of these questions uh, much more deeply. Along with that, I was wondering if, if uh, John or Joseph, uh, either of you could count or could comment on this. In some of the protocols that we've seen, there's language to the effect of that uh, triage teams, which we'll talk about in a bit, um, should not incorporate beliefs or ethical principles that are not specifically addressed in the protocol. And many of these protocols are written for a sec- from a secular perspective, and they don't include specifically Catholic principles or Catholic teaching. If you comment on some of the difficulties that that language brings about. Yeah, that that is a challenge. I'll tell you, one of the, uh, it seems to me, one of the real challenges as as everybody uh, tries to do good here is you you identify uh, again certain goods that you want to uh, achieve or to protect and one of those is equality treating everybody the same um, and you know so how do you do that in a situation not only of many patients, but scarce resources, and then all of the, the confusion and sometimes the danger uh, that comes with uh, a disease pandemic. Again, it, it's, a unique, it's a unique problem, in particular for healthcare institutions. And I think what that language is trying to say uh, is that in the name of equality, and in the name of consistency, uh, they are going to be uh, treating people, uh, letting them into the ICU, let, letting them remain in the ICU on the basis of some very uh, clear and specific and consistent guidelines. And they are not going to do or recognize what can happen Uh, many times in the course of of daily life in America before this pandemic, which is, you know, you get an individual in the hospital or the ICU, and maybe they're they're not quite dying, but they're also not progressing. And the question is, what do you want to do? And then, uh, you know, the family starts arguing, the patient's wishes aren't clear. And, you know, sometimes there's a struggle to work with all that uh, variability and all that uncertainty. And I think one thing they're saying, I'm not saying it's entirely correct, 
but one thing they're saying is we we don't have time um, for all this uncertainty. We don't have time to give people the time uh, that we did in the past. And so, uh, again, I, I think it is uh, it's driven by a good motive uh, and and by a goal of saying we can. Uh, we can treat people fairly if we treat them equally and according to the same criteria. Um, anyway, and that's that's where you get with a conclusion we may not like, as you said, we're leaving out other values and, and other considerations. All right, let's move on to some uh, discussion of some specific ethical issues in triage protocols, which we have seen. First one up, triage teams. What's a triage team, and are they ethical? Well, you know, uh, a triage team, again, this is something that seems to me uh, has, has been pushed into place, especially in American hospitals, in a way it, it hasn't been before. Um, they're put forward for uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is with a, a huge number of patients coming in, we haven't hit the peak yet, the normal way things are done. You know, a patient has a, a primary care physician, you know, and at some point the primary care physician says, you know, I think, I think I'm going to check into the hospital so we can look at this. Um, patient might have an attending physician from a medical group check on them in the hospital, uh, you know, on a daily basis. This is different now. Uh, many more patients are showing up. You can't have that many patients in the hospital for their own protection. So a triage team is a special team of healthcare professionals, principally uh, doctors, although it may include ethics committee members uh, and so on, who make decisions about when patients come to the door of the hospital, the ER, whatever, where are they going to treatment? Are they going to the ICU or not? Are they going on a ventilator or not? Are they going to, uh, you know, like a, a fairly high level of um, uh, what's called post-acute care? Or are they going to receive only the most basic forms uh, of treatment and care and maybe palliative care? So they're there to make that decision. Uh, they're there to review patients' progress on a daily basis. Uh, and to make recommendations that probably are going to stick about, you know, whether they stay in the ICU or they come off a vent or something like that. And the goal, I think, is to have to make these decisions effectively. I mean, people who have competence probably in ICU levels of care very efficiently because they're doing it all day uh, consistently because consistency is a uh, is one of the requirements of treating people fairly. And there's one other consideration, and that is to spare the doctors and the nurses who are caring for the patients, you know, hours a day, uh, several days a week, to spare them the moral distress of having to say, I don't think we can go on, uh, and maybe to beat themselves up later, uh, you know, later in the whole thing. So, I'd say they can be ethical. Um, it seems they're necessary, uh, but with any great power, you know, you have to make sure it's used responsibly. Joseph Meany, anything to, to add to that? 
Yes, I mean there's a there's a certain inherent fear when uh, the topic of triage comes up, and some people are tempted to say, you know, well, we just have to refuse to do that, and of course. Nobody wants to do triage, but of course, uh, the reason it was developed in the very first place is that there, you know, on the battlefield, there were so many casualties, it was impossible to treat everybody uh, and to save everybody. So they had to make very, very hard choices. And these triage committees are basically for those extreme circumstances. But if those circumstances arise, they have to be prepared for that. And, and there is an ethical way to do that. And we'll talk about some of those as we move forward. So next question uh, dealing with triage protocols has to do with exclusionary criteria for critical care treatment. What, is, what are we talking about there and what are some of the ethical challenges involved with establishing exclusionary criteria? Well, as people developed uh, these triage protocols, and some of these go back, I think, about 20 years, anywhere between 15 to 20 years ago, some of the early uh, triage protocols uh, excluded some people uh, from uh, treatment, especially acute and ICU treatment, if they were above a certain age, uh, for example or maybe if they had uh, certain deficits or, or illness or injury, um, if they were suffering from Alzheimer's or something like that. So exclusionary criteria, I mean, what they would function to do is to say, if, if you have this characteristic, uh, then you will not be considered for uh, some sort of uh, life-sustaining treatment or, or treatment with these scarce resources. Now. We've seen some good protocols or better protocols, I would say. One uh, comes out of the University of Pittsburgh. It has some real strengths. One, one of the strengths I like most about it was they said we're not going to have exclusionary criteria. We're not going to take age or race uh, or, or even uh, mental status. We're not going to take any a uh, single thing that someone might say, oh, look, that person is unusual because, and make that a criterion to say you're not considered uh, for care. And that's that's a good thing. I mean, I think that would uh, certainly uh, parallel uh, and to some extent help us to uh, implement our, our principle of respect for human life and human dignity. How about some of the clinical indicators? moving forward. So we're not excluding people um, for age, disability, whatever the case may be, but we do have to make decisions. We have to prioritize patients. And one of the ways that many of these, um, these triage protocols are doing so are taking clinical indicators such as uh, SOFA, the um, subsequent organ failure assessment scale, and things like that. Talk a little bit about this. Are these permissible means of, of uh, making allocation decisions? Well, yeah, the uh, SOFA uh, is, is one of those criteria. I heard about another listening to a podcast uh, last week called Apache 2, and, and Apache is an acronym, and I don't, I don't know what it means. Uh, but, uh, you know, these, these are helpful tools and and what they are are sophisticated ways of assessing somebody's uh, health status 
um, the sofa one uh, goes through, um, you know, the heart, uh, the kidneys, uh, the liver, uh, all the major organ systems, the lung is, uh, are, is somebody uh, suffering from uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And they try to say, what is the person's health status? If someone is in really, really bad shape, uh, if they're suffering uh, multi-system organ failure, then they're probably not a good candidate uh, for treatment. So the advantage of these systems is that they can, uh, you can fill out a score without regard to an individual's age, race, sex, um, you know, mental disability, any number of things. And of course, it can be very sophisticated. Uh, I think it can be very objective uh, in terms of some clinical indicators. So it is, um, they are very helpful tools to help us to do uh, what I talked about earlier, um, you know, the principle of treating everybody equally uh, and following a consistent uh, application of criteria. So that they're good for that. Uh, I would say, you know, were they designed to work in a pandemic, uh, you know, with this new novel virus? Not necessarily. So, and I did see uh, a doctor write a good article. I think he, uh, he's from Texas. I think he's a member of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. He, he made the point that SOFA is a good scale. It's a helpful tool. It, uh, however, he said you can't completely replace clinical judgment and physician assessment. You know, and and I like that point. In other words, we're not going to be saved by numbers by saying you know uh, if we if we can assign a number, then we don't we don't have any more decisions to make. We don't have any more prudential assessments to make. We, we still need uh, clinical uh, assessments and judgment by physicians looking at human individuals who are always unique. Uh, they're more than the sum of their score. Let's move into a question that Catholic healthcare systems and actually many healthcare systems are asking. They're saying, okay, we have a patient We've established a priority score using SOFA or Apache or something else, but now we've got one ventilator and we've got two, three, four patients, and their priority score is the same using SOFA or using Apache or whatever. How do you determine the tiebreaker? Well, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, it seems to me that uh, I can think of at least three options, uh, and I'll tell you which, which one I think is best, although it might be controversial. So one option would just be to say, well, who got there first? You know, first come, first served. Um, and some people say, well, you know, that doesn't work, or that's not necessarily fair, uh, or treating people equally, maybe people closest to the hospital or with the the best health insurance, you know, they're going to get there first. But one way would be to say whoever gets there first, uh, that's it. A second way uh, would be to um, make it by chance. So give people lottery numbers, literally throw the dice, you know, 
uh, you know, when the apostles had to pick a, a replacement for Judas Iscariot, they literally uh, threw some dice, although they were obviously praying and trusting in God. But you could make a decision based purely on chance. Or the third thing is that you would make a choice uh, based on some sort of ordered understanding of the good, of the human good or a priority uh, of goods. Um, and that gets controversial because as soon as you say we're going to choose this person over that person, you try to avoid that with the, you know, the SOFA score or Apache 2. Um, but if you're pushed, some people are going to say you should never choose. If you ever choose, then you're making a decision over which life is, is more worthy than another. And that's, that's a tough position to be in. I just wonder, again, if first serve, uh, first come, first serve, or chance is, <laughs> is really the right way to do it. Um, I mean, and who knows if anyone will have to do it. I think hospitals, institutions ought to work to make sure this does not become uh, a possibility. But if they did, um, what if there was a pregnant uh, mother you know, uh, in one bed and a, uh, a 60-year-old guy uh, in the other, and they both needed the same ventilator. I mean, again, you could say, well, who came in first? Or uh, pick a card. Or you could say, you know what? Maybe we can save two patients. All other things being equal, let's see if we can save two patients. You know, that might be one way to do it. Joseph Meany, your comments on this question. Yeah, I would I would agree very much with Dr. Brahaney, and I would just add, you know, that some of the proposals for tiebreakers, specifically uh, quality of life or age of the patient, uh, are very bad ways to determine tiebreakers. And unfortunately, there's kind of a almost a, an instinctive or maybe a subconscious response on the side of people that you know a 60 year old's life is less worth living than a than a 20 year old's. Uh, because they have fewer years ahead of them, all things being equal. Uh, but all those things go against the fundamental principle that each human life has an equal dignity. And so we're not really, you know, concerned about this quality of life or, you know, how many years you have in front of you, but treating people with the same dignity. Yeah, I would, I would second that as well. I know some of the protocols that we've been looking at, when you get down to the secondary level, they are essentially using age as the tiebreaker, and they'll, they'll use language such as saving the most life years or those who can experience more life stages. In other words, they're veiled ways of saying, you know, when we get to tiebreakers, it's, it's about age. And it raises um, a number of uh, very poignant ethical questions. All right, so moving on, let's uh, talk a bit about the ethics of removing a patient from a ventilator. When, if ever, is it permissible to remove a patient from a ventilator? I would say, of course, one of the, one of the challenges in this whole pandemic situation uh, is, is remembering old lessons uh, and, and fundamental principles um, in, in the middle of this scramble uh, to deal, again, with the high acuity and the shortage of resources. So when is it pay, uh, permissible to remove a patient from a ventilator? 
one part of that answer has to be with the informed consent of the patient or of the patient's surrogate, you know? Um, that That's one piece of the answer. The other piece of the answer is going to be uh, as long as that first condition is met, uh, when it becomes clear enough and with moral certitude, not absolute certitude, uh, but with moral certitude that the, the patient is, is dying or declining uh, and isn't going to make it, um, can you make a decision that the patient is, in a sense, not improving at all, not necessarily dying, but not improving, and then you cannot, in a sense, wait to try to help a patient who might have a better chance. Um, you know, that gets really challenging. I mean, one of the things I, I know we've all heard from recent news stories is uh People are not, the ventilator is not a panacea. Many people are dying in spite of being on ventilators and even being on them a long time. So, uh, and the data are going to change. Maybe they'll find some tricks, uh, some techniques to improve therapy while people are, are on ventilators. But such a decision still should be made uh, with informed consent, I would say. Joseph Meany, anything to add? It's obviously a heartbreaking decision, but one of the things that uh, has to be kept in mind always is that uh, there is a there's a real generosity in the human spirit, and a lot of individuals, uh, even you know, maybe called upon to give up their ventilators, will be willing to do so as out of a spirit of self sacrifice. What, what we really want to avoid is to have people forcibly taken off um, in ways that are completely unjust. And so that's the, the key thing to avoid ethically here. Related to the question of ventilators, what about DNRs or do not resuscitate orders? Are there situations where doctors can write DNR orders for, for COVID-19 patients, even without the consent of the patient or the patient's family? That is uh, another case. I mean, that, you know, simply writing a DNR orders, people making the decision that they are not going to undergo a, a full code effort uh, at resuscitation is a decision that's made uh, every day uh, in many places. There are two issues that I've heard of uh, regarding DNRs and uh, patients suffering uh, from COVID-19 that, that I think are of interest or present some uh, unique ethical questions. So one is, uh, again, in the middle of this pandemic and in the name of, of trying to help as many people as possible, uh, should hospitals or institutions say, once you come into the ICU, everybody's a DNR? You know, I mean, if you're, if you're coming in, you're probably very, very sick. Um, and we're simply, we're, we're only going to do so much. So that, that's kind of a, a universal DNR. And, uh, and if you won't agree to it, you don't come in. Um, you know, that's an exclusionary uh, criterion to go back to something uh, you mentioned earlier. And we think those are not justified to, to apply those to everybody. There, there's too much 
variability in patient condition and patient wishes uh, to do something like a universal DNR. Uh, the other issue, though, has to do just with uh, the ethics of doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation, especially on patients with COVID-19 or, you know, who are in the hospital during this time. I mean, they might be, a, you know, like an auto accident victim. Nevertheless, they, they might be exposed or infected uh, or something like that. And that is, um, would engaging uh, in that full code actually put uh, the healthcare team at risk? Because when someone is coded, uh, they're pounding on their chest, they're shocking them, um, they actually can, you know, cough and spit and put a lot more fluid into the air. Uh, that really could put that healthcare team into danger. And suiting up uh, with even more personal protective equipment uh, than normal uh, might take more time. And of course, time is a critical element uh, when resuscitating someone anyway. So it may well be, uh, I think, of course, these decisions as much as possible should be made with informed consent and with upfront education when someone comes into an institution about what may or may not happen if, if uh, a resuscitation situation arises. But I think there's a real moral good to be protected, and that is the lives uh, and even the ability to work of the healthcare team. Normally, a code does not put them at this level of danger. We are coming up against it in terms of time, and I want to give our, both of our guests an opportunity to give us some final words of wisdom. So, Dr. Meany, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners? So, I really want to let them know that the National Catholic Bioethics Center is there for them, that our 24-hour, seven days a week consultation service is available. They can call us. They can email us. Um, they simply go to our website, ncbcenter.org. And the, the center is fully functional and there to serve their needs, uh, both individuals and institutions. I think it's, it's very important that the solidarity uh, be shown to everyone at this time. Uh, you know, one of the, the great dangers of uh, social distancing or isolation is that people are apart. And there's a tendency for fear and panic to be uh, a part of that mix and for people to look at each other suspiciously, et cetera. But what we really should be challenging each other to do is to be more, uh, more loving and more prayerful for each other and to treat each other as well as we possibly can. I mean, we're all going through a very stressful time. That's very clear. But at the same time, you know, we can have wonderful fruits from this in terms of you know, the, the triumph of the human spirit, the courage of our healthcare workers, uh, people being self-sacrificial, and and we need to really focus on uh, being the best versions of ourselves that we can be during this time for our families, for those who are in need. And the National Catholic Bioethics Center is trying to be an example of that because we believe it's so important uh, to be uh, present and to to be available to all those that need us. Amen. Very well stated, Dr. Brahaney. Any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Yeah, I'll just um, try to build upon what Dr. Meany said. One thing, 
one thing I'd like to say is there's more to ethics than avoiding moral evil. Certainly, we've discussed any number of dilemmas. You know, we are also called to serve uh, human and ethical goods. So I hope that uh, in addition to not choosing evil, uh, that that Catholics and healthcare professionals are saying, how, how do we do things better? How do we look for alternatives? Um, you know, how do we increase the effectiveness with which uh, we use our resources so that we're not forced to choose, you know, between uh, offering care to this person and not that. So part of it is don't, in a sense, wait and, and settle for dealing with the ethical dilemma. Try to try to avoid it or sidestep it. And the second thing is, um, yeah, I hope that people will not, uh, in this time of confusion and uncertainty, um, just wait for answers and even uh, ethical frameworks from the secular world. I think this is a time to draw on our Catholic faith, uh, to draw on a living faith uh, in prayer and in hope, uh, in, in really trying to live that life and to draw on our Catholic intellectual and moral tradition uh, and bring the best elements of that to bear. You know, we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. And, um, you know, this is really an opportunity to do that. I know the NCBC is going to continue to try to uh, draw on that treasure house of resources that are there in the Catholic uh, intellectual tradition and make them available. But I think people ought to be thinking along those lines. Again, amen. Dr. Joseph Meany, Dr. John Brahaney. Thank you for your time today, and thank you for a wonderful interview. For more information on these topics, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and click on the tab, NCBC Resources for COVID-19. You can also subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. If you enjoy these podcasts and would like to support them and the National Catholic Bioethics Center, please click the donate button on your website. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.